Welcome to Eurodollar University with Jeff Snyder. My name is Emil Kalinowski. We're going to be going over a very momentous date in macroeconomic history. August 3rd, when Jim Cramer was right. Yes, CNBC's most famous carnival barker went on the air August 3rd, 2007. And he said that this is all about Bernanke. I'm paraphrasing here, but I, I, I'm pretty close on these quotes. This is all about Bernanke that they have no idea what's going on, that he has talked to the heads of these firms, almost all of the heads of the firms in the last 72 hours, and that they have no idea what's going on out there, that the Fed has to open the discount window because panic crisis was in the air. The global financial crisis, as we would later come to call it, was on its way. Well, that's what CNBC Jim Cramer Carnival Barker was saying. So we can't take him seriously, can we? That was August 3rd. August 7th, Bill Dudley was meeting with the FOMC and he was the head, Jeff, he was the head of, I'm going to call it open market operations, but what's his official title at the New York branch? Oh God, it's open market desk manager, system yeah, manager. Ma I think something like that. System, I mean, manager. system manager of the open market. I mean, it has to do with the open market desk. He was the... Fed representative with the market, right, Jeff? He is yeah. facing the market as representing the Fed in New York City, making deals, putting in, telling his workers, this is what our goal is. Here's what we're going to be doing. He's got contacts with the industry. Anyways, he came and he talked to the FOMC, and I believe they, they met that day, and his comments were the very, very first ones. Bernanke turned to him right away in the transcript. Dudley went on and on and explained what was going on. He said that generally they've looked into it, into what was happening in the commercial paper markets and some other market, and they don't see any crisis right away. Nothing imminent was the exact quote, though things could change quickly, he said. At that exact same time, almost across the Atlantic, the same day, August 7th, BNB Paribas, which was the second largest bank in Europe at the time in Paris, noticed that they were having trouble valuing three of their funds. For the next couple of days, they couldn't value them. And on the 9th, they released a press release saying that this was the case. And little did we know, Jeff, little did we know, we're going to be going over the anniversary of August 9th, 2007, or as Mr. Applegarth, the head of uh, Northern Rock, the CEO of Northern Rock, said the world ended, the world changed on August 9th. But, well, Jeff, why are we going over it? And what is the audience going to learn from today's episode? Well, you and I, Emil, we mark August 9th every year because to us, it's a date which will live in infamy. It doesn't live in infamy right now because hardly anybody knows what happened on August 9th for various reasons, which we'll get into here. But for us, August, Mr. Applegarth was absolutely correct. It's easy to dis dismiss the guy because Northern Rock was basically the first casualty of the global financial crisis. And he's been smeared as this risk-taking, foolish investor who ran a bank into the ground. So why should we care what this guy has to say? But he's not the only one to say it. We see it in marketplaces. We see it in data. To this day, you can spot August 9th, 2007 on any money market chart. It's there. And it's funny. It's like it's like watching uh, before August 9th, 2007. You, like if you plot, you know, something like federal funds, repo rates and put them on a chart, 
they all go along in a nice straight line. Everything looks happy and normal and everything. And then all of a sudden, boom, you get to August 9th and it just goes all over the place. It's haywire. August 9th was the day in which everything changed. There was stuff going on before August 9th. But when that press release at 2.44 a.m. in the morning Eastern time hit the wires, nothing has been the same. I compare it to the assassination of the Archduke Ferdinand in 1914 because at the time, nobody, some Archduke in Austria, who cares, over in Serbia, that led to World War I, which then led to the Great Depression. I mean, the catastrophic events that followed it, they seemed incongruous to what that little tiny event was. That was August 9th, 2007. This little press release from this French bank with money market funds domiciled in Liechtenstein, that kicked off not just the global financial crisis, but everything that has happened since then has been in the wake of that disaster. And the fact that it doesn't live in infamy already is a crying shame, but it also explains a lot about why we're still moving in the wrong direction as a society. Not just economy and finance and money, but politics, society, living countries, geopolitics, everything is falling apart because nobody really knows what happened. And so every August 9th, you and I, were going to get together. We're going to review what happened because we want people to know that this isn't just about some, some event 15 years in the past. This is still causing us problems, anxiety, disruptions today, and it will continue to cause disruptions as long as people don't realize what happened on August 9th. August 9th kicked off the global financial crisis. And when did, in 2008, 2007, when did advanced economy fertility rates decrease and inflection (laughs) go the wrong way? 2008, when did worldwide surveys of faith and democracy inflect and go the wrong way? When did the Economist's Freedom Index inflect and go the wrong way? When did the happiness index inflect and go the wrong way worldwide? These are worldwide measures. They all turned and have never recovered, never recovered. Drug overdose deaths, right? You look at the statistics from the CDC in the United States. Drug, you know, It's as if we did rediscovered heroin around 2009. And mm-hmm. we're all supposed to be confused about why that is. And it's not. When, you know, the labor market got destroyed in a way it hadn't been destroyed since the mm. 1930s, because that's what depressions are. And I love your term, Emil. Your term, silent depression, absolutely applies here. It's exactly what we're just talking about. It's a silent depression because nobody knows what happened, even on the very first day of it, which was August 9th, 2007. And that's why earlier you, you referenced it. You said it was a day of infamy, of course, referencing President Roosevelt's speech on December 8th regarding the attack on December 7th, 1941, the U.S. entry into the World War. The world was never the same again. As you said, it harkens back to what happened with World War I. I remember there was an article, I think in retrospective, where they talked about how this was similar. The, the events of August 9th were similar to that particular day and how the guns of August blew apart the belief we had about simplicity and credit and all the carnage that we've experienced ever since. So I agree. It's uh, December 7th, the assassination of the Archduke. We'll look back on this as one of the key dates of the 21st century. But 
Let's get back to the article. Okay, let me read the opening paragraph. It's a very good one. Quote, the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission was impaneled to have the final say on the 2008 panic. A political affair, though not necessarily partisan, its true purpose was to get the public to stop talking about the disaster by appearing thorough, to dissuade regular folks from asking more questions before someone might eventually hit upon the right ones. And I'm reading from your Real Clear Markets essay that was posted on the 5th of August, 2022. It's titled, What's Lacking Right Now is the Fed's Will to Act. Jeff, the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission focused on the snowflake, not the snowpack, <laughs> the, the feather, not the luggage, the what, the raindrop, not the fragile dam itself. It's almost like they had a predetermined conclusion and they were sticking to it. I mean, they were thorough. They actually collected, I think, is something in the order of, I, I don't want to say, is millions of documents. There was hundreds and hundreds of witnesses, and they were all the right kind of witnesses with all the impressive credentials, the bankers themselves, academics, government officials, Fed officials. Ben Bernanke testified extensively, though nobody really seems to have heard what he said. And when you get to the final report, which I think was like a thousand pages, uh, just going off my memory. It was extensive report. And of course, you see the word Lehman Brothers, the term, or the name Lehman Brothers appears something, you know, several hundred times. Bear Stearns is in there several hundred times. And of course, the punchline, the term subprime was in there. I think I counted 784 instances. So they were making a point here. Pretty much every page. Almost if it's every a page. thousand pages, yeah. subprime, more, subprime was on every page. Just about. And so it's, it's, Hey, subprime mortgages, greedy Wall Street bankers, case closed, QE, everybody's fine going forward. Who came to our rescue to suggest no? None other than Ben Bernanke. Quote, prospective subprime losses were clearly not large enough on their own to account for the magnitude of the crisis. Rather, the system's vulnerabilities, together with gaps in the government's crisis response toolkit, were the principal explanations of why the crisis was so severe and had such devastating effects on the broader economy. To his credit, Jeff? Yeah, that's, you know, it's somewhat surprising to see that much candor from Ben Bernanke. But then again, you know, occasionally like Alan Greenspan, he did actually, you know, like he said in his first blog post for Brookings, monetary policy is 98% talk. I mean, you know, admirable candor, but where was that on August 9th of 2007? Because let's remember, in March of 2007, Mr. Bernanke was in front of Congress for his Humphrey Hawkins testimony saying, paraphrasing, he didn't exactly say that, but this is, you know, the quote everybody remembers is subprime is contained. That wasn't the exact quote, but that was his message that, hey, so far it looks like this is just a subprime mortgage problem. It's going to be a problem for subprime mortgage providers in that part of the market but is largely contained. And then after the crisis, after it became very clear, after the world suffered incalculable damage from it, he says to the FCIC, oh no, um, you know, really there was system vulnerabilities we didn't really understand. There was gaps in our, in our government's toolkit to respond to it, which if you realize what he's saying and really hear what he's saying, what Ben Bernanke was confessing to was that Something else went on entirely. We haven't told you the exact story. It's not subprime mortgages. The system itself was vulnerable. 
That just begs the question, what do you mean the system was vulnerable? What are these gaps in the toolkit that could not fix these vulnerabilities? And that's the part that really bugs the hell out of me is because that's what the entire report should have focused on right then and there. As soon as he said vulnerabilities, gaps in the toolkit, that should have led off into a thousand pages of euro dollar, euro dollar, euro dollar, euro dollar. Well, I'm thinking back to our uh, Dreyfus Affair show where we, we had the same... Drysdale. Drysdale. Dreyfus Affair. <laughs> yeah, Drysdale. It's 100 years further back in yes. time, in, but still in Paris. You see where I'm coming from. Yeah, I, got, I think I made the same mistake. I think I said Dreyfus Affair in that episode, too, because it it's, it's kind of sticks in your mind. Drysdale. Drysdale Affair... Uh, there was a peak all of a sudden, all of a sudden the room lit up and you could see that there were people doing something with repurchase agreements. And then the lights went out and the Fed said, no, let's just worry about the uh, interest payments. Anyways, the point in here again is systemic vulnerabilities were ignored and we instead focused on subprime mortgages. But Jeff, wouldn't that the three funds that BNP Paribas said they face a complete evaporation of liquidity on those were asset-backed security funds, right? BNP Paribas, ABS Eurobor, ABS Ionia, ABS Dynamic. So asset-backed securities, mortgage-backed securities, shouldn't we focus on those raindrops, snowflakes, and feathers? Yeah, and I think that's why there's so much focus on subprime mortgages even today, because like with everything else, there's a little bit of a grain of truth there. We're not saying that subprime mortgages weren't important. What we're saying is they were not the whole story. They were essentially part of the introduction to a multi-chapter book. You know, it's a thousand page novel and that's, that's maybe the first inciting incident in it. It's not the entire story. Uh, what BNP Paribas said through these three funds, and first of all, you know, what were these funds? These were money market funds. These were not investment funds. They were money market funds. And they had funny sounding names because they represented this global world spanning monetary system. They were money funds sponsored by a French bank domiciled in Liechtenstein that were intending to be euro denominated money rates by investing in U.S. dollar asset backed securities, U.S. dollar asset backed securities that were at that time valued in the same way as Treasury bills, essentially, because they were short term, high quality, not necessarily subprime, but high quality asset backed securities which of all types of assets, not just mortgages, other types of assets, too, that had been securitized and moved and made into. And here's the point. These ABS had been made into these securities that were regularly traded every day, all day on global markets with all sorts of participants in them. And the reason BNP could no longer value these securities wasn't because they were worthless, because in the end, nobody lost any money on them. They were not worthless. The markets in which they were trading simply vanished. They disappeared. They dried up. It was as if money in the financial system just up and it just completely disappeared, completely vanished. That's why on August 9th, 2007, when BNP issued their press release saying we can't value these funds, it wasn't, oh my God, subprime mortgages is huge. The bomb that was set off, the, the explosion that set off was, oh my God, these markets are illiquid. That's a very different story 
And what you've been told about subprime mortgage, which makes it sound like credit risk. But as Ben Bernanke said, the losses on subprime mortgage were never even close to enough to explain what happened. And if you understand August 9th and then everything after in the context of market liquidity and how severely drained it had become, then you understand everything else that follows. So August 9th funnels our attention into the right direction, which is about global money, not subprime mortgages. So it was liquidity problem, Jeff, because August 9th didn't just come out of nowhere. There were warning signs along the way that there's problems in mortgage-backed securities. And so other market participants that BNP Paribas would turn to or trade with, they started to get cold feet. Is that right? And then more and more people were getting cold feet and how to value this portion of their portfolio or these securities. And then, so BNP, is that right? And then BNP Paribas said, okay, well, we can model what the value would be if the market existed. Yes. And eventually they they just gave up. Well, no one's telling us there's, there's no market. We are not comfortable with these models. So we're just going to stop valuing and prevent any redemptions from these funds. And you can see how it can set up such a vicious circle, you know, how it becomes a self-reinforcing doom loop, right? Because as BNP says, this market is no longer liquid. I can't value my assets. Now everybody says, oh, if they can't value their assets, then are they losing money? Or is there, are these assets any good? And if those assets aren't good and BNP can't tell what they are, what about this guy over here or that person over there or this person over there? It creates this atmosphere of mistrust. As we know, on August, especially August 10th of 2007, the unsecured lending markets across the world just simply dried up especially for a lot of people who are maybe lower quality because this lack of trust spread everywhere. Lack of liquidity in markets means that, you know, suddenly we're, we don't trust what the prices are, the values, the, the risks. We can't tell what the risks are on all these underlying assets. We can't tell what valuations were, are. And if I can't tell what valuations are, I don't have a good handle on risk. I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to play it safe. I'm going to pull all my chips off the table and put them in my pocket and run away to the next casino. Let's talk about August 10th and the rates that you mentioned earlier, the unsecured rates. What happened to them, Jeff? We were going into the August 9th date. Then August 10th, these rates went haywire. Where were we on August 9th? With What was the federal funds rate? Where was the ONIA rate? And then what happened the day after BNP Paribas announced that their this liquidity has dried up. The morning of August 9th essentially played out the way you would expect, which is that Eonia rates, uh, which is a euro-denominated unsecured interbank lending rate, the equivalent of federal funds in many respects, the federal funds rate in U.S. dollars, as well as you know all the LIBOR rates, they all surge. And by surge, it kind of you know it's underwhelming when you realize that three months LIBOR surged by 12 basis points. <laughs> it went from, you know, what was it, uh, 530-something up to 540-something. You know, you wouldn't think that that was such a momentous move. But as we said before, before August 9th, 2007, money rates were almost completely, you know, static. They were boring. They didn't move at all. So a 12 basis point move out of nowhere was like an explosion. A huge nuclear bomb had been detonated in the markets. Was that credit risk 
we're worried that these rates represent, what would you lend money to some random bank at what rate? So you get this news from BNP Paribas, you would obviously want more. Is that what we were seeing, credit risk fear? Yes. So you would say on August 9th, the initial reaction is you you have to pay more for me to lend you cash because, you know, this is something uncertain. But on August 10th, it was an order of magnitude worse, even though money rates did the exact opposite. Money rates fell all across the board in these markets. Federal funds rate dropped to four something. I can't remember, 460, 470, something like that which was way, way, way below target. And uh, Ionia rates fell. We talked about in the prior episode too. GC repo rates fell, T-bill rates fell, and it seemed like panic over with. That was, that was the end of it. And why was that an order of magnitude worse? Was because at least on August 9th, people were willing to lend pretty much freely to their whole market at penalty rates, at high rates. But on August 10th, they were not lending to a lot of people. They were only lending to the best quality borrowers in the marketplace, which you can see when you actually look at the dispersion in markets like federal funds, for example, the uh, dispersion, the low end of the federal funds range on August 10th and Monday, August 13th was something like 0%, which means that somebody was in the federal funds market just content to get their money back from somebody. I'm gonna lend you cash at zero, because I'm not going to lend to this other guy I used to do business with at any rate. And that was really the damage that was being done on August 10th was the fact that the, mon- the market itself began to completely bifurcate. It completely broke apart. We started to see these fragmentations where rates themselves become misleading because low rates are actually a sign of the worst kind of tight money conditions there are where cash lenders in the market are only lending to a very small slice of that market, leaving everybody else completely out of it entirely. And if you no longer can borrow in, say, federal funds, or you can no longer borrow in euro dollars, what are you going to do? You're going to do all sorts of things that create only greater problems down the road, make markets more illiquid, fire sales, becomes a vicious cycle. Right. So the Fed funds target was 5.25 heading into this crisis. And then on August 10th, 4.68 plunging because you're, as you said, a good number of them were at zero. Unbelievable. But it would seem, hey, everything's better. Look how, no, it wouldn't. It doesn't seem that way. It, would, it surely must have set off an emergency bell. And Europe reacted first and their European Central Bank and then the Fed, not for a month or two afterwards, Jeff, did they react in any sort of sense? But no, they did. The Fed responded right away on August 10th. They did okay. a $19 billion repo. Uh, there was a repo tender. They also lowered the what's now what's now called primary credit, what used to be called the discount rate, uh, I think by 50, maybe it was 25 basis point. That was actually done in August of 2007 before all the stuff in September, which, of course, had no effect. What happened in September? Yeah, what was in September? I've, I'm confused. September was the first rate cut to the federal funds target. So that was their main policy okay. change in September because these initial moves didn't do anything whatsoever to, ch- to change the situation. Now, a big question, of course, was whose problem was this? You mentioned earlier, this was a French bank domiciled in Liechtenstein using U.S. dollars. A lot of the were tra- based on sourcing funds from U.S. dollar investments. And then a lot of the trading was taking place in London. 
And so authorities didn't know where the problem, whose problem it was. Yeah, so you have emergency conferences in uh, Frankfurt, the ECB. You have emergency conferences in London, the Bank of England, not the city of London, but uh, actually it is on the city of London, it's right on the border. Bank of England. Um, then you have emergency conferences, of course, in D.C., New York, the Federal Reserve. And everybody's trying to figure out, well, what is the problem and whose problem is it? Because the problem is, it seems to be concentrated in Europe. There's a bunch of European banks. They're trading in these markets in London, except for the fact that they're trading in U.S. dollars. They're borrowing and lending in U.S. dollars, but it's in London. So is that the Bank of England's problem because they're banks in England? Or is it the Fed's problem because they're trading dollars? And nobody could decide whose issue was it. I mean, what is we really what what is is it the Fed's responsibility because the Fed doesn't have any mandate outside the United States border? Is it the Bank of England's responsibility when it's trading in the currency that's not the Bank of England's currency? It was a complete and utter mess. And Emil, you know this really well. It's exactly what people had been warning about in the 1960s and 1970s as the euro dollar started to take over the roles of the reserve currency. I remember Charlie Coombs, who was the system open market manager back then, said, you know, if something happens in this euro dollar market, nobody's going to know who is responsible for it. Guido Carli, the Bank of Italy head, for a long time head of the Bank of Italy, said the same thing. You know, there's all these dollars outside the United States. And if something goes wrong, the Fed's going to go, hey, we don't, it's not our problem. And the Bank of England's going to go, well, it's not our problem. And the whole thing is just going to go, the whole thing's just going to turn into a huge mess because now that you have market chaos and disorder and illiquidity, you have no, nobody even understanding whose job it is to take care of all of this. You know, the Fed says, we'll take care of uh, what's going on in the United States as far as banks, but that's not a central bank. That's a domestic bank regulator. And that's a vastly different thing than what the public has been told. And it gets back to what Ben Bernanke told the FCIC. What he didn't say, but what he, he, he read between the lines is that we have a, this system vulnerabilities was these US dollar markets, this US dollar system that lies outside the United States. These gaps in the government's toolkit was the fact the Federal Reserve is nothing more than a domestic bank regulator. And those two things don't meet. And so you get into a crisis situation there is simply no way for a domestic bank regulator to stop a global money, monetary panic, even if that global monetary panic takes to the domination of the U.S. dollar, because the Fed is not a central bank. That's what he was really saying, <laughs> not that he would ever say it in those terms. And is so I, that's the punchline, Jeff, then that's the punchline is. Is that why we can't let this out into the open? Is it, is it a conspiracy or is it just bureaucratic uh, protection of turf. And we have a Federal Reserve and they have, a, they have their bureaucracy. And if we admitted that they don't do money, they can't identify, define, measure, map its creation or distribution, and it's mostly pop psychology and expectations management, then it would look bad. Right? Is that... That's why we can't. That's part of. And I think discuss it, it, what was happening in August 9th? Yeah, and it's it's corruption. It's it's the idea that they can't come clean now because then they would have to admit that for the last seventy years the Fed is in the central bank. And how do they? How does anybody actually do that? I mean, that's that's an impossible task to begin with. But it also undermines their their authority, which mm -hmm. the monetary policy today that doesn't have any money in it is all. It's entirely dependent upon projecting authority. 
which, you know, again, we get into the Wizard of Oz imagery, you know, the floating head behind the fiery, you know, explosions and everything else. When it's really just this, this decrepit old man behind the curtain, they cannot admit to the truth because then they have zero chance of maintaining this expectations policy, which depends upon everybody buying into don't fight the Fed. When here's Ben Bernanke in front of the SAIC saying, we're not actually a central bank. These gaps in the government's toolkit, they're gaps for a reason. And the reason is we're not a central bank. And the monetary system is not, is not just the United States. It's the entire world. And there's banks, there's participants, there's markets that just they don't align with what the Federal Reserve actually does. And as that thing went wrong on August 9th, 2007, the reason it's a date that will live in infamy is because there's no way to go back from it unless we start by realizing what really happened and what really happened was exposing these truths. Jeff, excellent. Is there anything, sometimes people in the comments say, well, what am I supposed to do about it? I'm thinking that perhaps you can let people know that not only do you write for Real Clear Markets, essays there, and you do a business column for the Epoch Times, E-P-O-C-H, Times, but you also work with Steve Van Meter. So maybe you can... Maybe there's some guidance there. What are people supposed to do with this story? How can they protect themselves? Let them know. Yeah, if you're an investor looking for ways to shelter yourself or at least to try to make sense of investing in this type of a climate, I'm partnered with Steve at Atlas Financial. We have a bunch of portfolio strategies that you can look up at portfolioshield.net. All the information is there that's available. You can also check, check out more information uh, we do the research service, marketsinsiderpro.com. And as well as one other thing, Emil and I are producing exclusive membership videos. And today we're going to do a, a really good one. We're going to take a look at balance sheet construction. If you really want to know where the money comes from and where it disappears to, we're put, we're, like I said, we're producing membership exclusive videos. You can check that out at eurodollar.university, our homepage website. There's all the details are there. And especially a tremendous thank you and shout out to all the members who have signed up, which are incredibly overwhelming. I mean, we're up to almost 200 members already. People are really looking forward to and looking and we're, we're trying to get them as much of this inside information as we possibly can so that you can at least, at the very least, understand what's going on in the world today. And then hopefully, if you understand that, you can start to prepare yourself about what you need to do about it. 